Jenna, we've done a few episodes now, and the stories we're hearing are really intense, but incredible. I know, Wagawe. They're so inspiring and so tragic that whenever we're finished talking to someone, I'm not totally sure whether I'm motivated and pumped for these people who've turned their lives around, or if I'm just sad that these things happen in the first place. Take Alicia Molina, who was looking for a way out of her addiction to crystal meth and thought she found it when she got pregnant. I thought that... Well, if I had a child, I would have to stop using. Like, there's no other way. You can't carry a baby and smoke meth. I mean, that's just unheard of. Nobody does that. But unfortunately, my disease was so cunning, baffling, and powerful. I did use during my pregnancy. I did use when my son was born. I think that's just part of listening to survivor stories, right? It's really inspiring, but you just went through this horrible thing. So I try to tell myself this as part of the human experience. We can have complicated and contradictory feelings about what happens to us and what we're going through. Totally. And as we're finding out, trauma is not easy to talk about. You feel like you can't tell anybody, again, because of the shame, the fear, and then the confusion. That's Jasmine Grace Marino. She was introduced to a life of sex trafficking in Massachusetts by her boyfriend when she was 18. That boyfriend then became her pimp. When you're dealing with sex buyers, you feel like you have the power because he's paying you the money. And it's all this this lie and this fallacy and this facade, you know, because we become other people and we become whoever the sex buyer wants us to be for that hour or half an hour. You can know in your heart of hearts that you're in a bad situation. But telling yourself and the people around you that you're fine can make you feel like things are in your control, even if just for a little while. I'm Wagatwe Wanjuki. And I'm Jenna Brister. This is iSurvivor. On our show, we talk about the attacks, the assaults, the manipulation, the fear, and the triumphs. About the people who fought back, who won, and who live each day rising above that experience. People like Alicia Molina, who, through strength of self and help from her family, managed to kick the drug and alcohol addictions she'd been battling since age 13. And Jasmine Grace Marino, who found ways out of the sex trade and drug addiction through willpower, family support, and writing in her journal. These are really difficult situations to recover from, with trauma stemming from experiences that last years and years. It's really tricky when they're related, too. Jasmine's boyfriend, he was a drug dealer, and he became her trafficker. He was physically assaulting her, and it got all mixed up. So by the time she realized what was happening, Jasmine felt so trapped, and it took her five years to break free. And it's amazing that she did escape. Millions of victims of sex trafficking are stuck in that world, and it is a form of modern-day slavery. We'll give you tips on how to spot human trafficking later on in the show. You know, it's really hard to blow the lid off of these type of issues. You know, trafficking, addiction, alcoholism, especially since we stigmatize them, right? Like we treat them like they're these individual failures instead of a reflection of the shortfalls that we have in our society. Y'all did not do anything wrong, ladies, and people of all genders, really. (laughs) Luckily, today's guests were able to find their way out. Now let's hear our first story. When Jasmine was 18, her boyfriend forced her into sex trafficking. He drew her in by saying it would be a way for them to have a closer relationship, support a family, and make good money. Jasmine wrote an incredibly moving account of her experience called The Diary of Jasmine Grace, Trafficked, Recovered, Redeemed. The book's made of diary entries from when Jasmine met her boyfriend to when she left him and began to put the pieces of her life back together. Here's Jasmine Grace Marino. 
I started drinking and drugging young, probably 12, 13. And I think that's a really confusing time for young kids, never mind when you start adding drugs in and drinking and hanging out with older boys and sex and all these questions you have. And I was raped at least twice by the time I was 14. But I don't remember because of the drinking and the blackouts from the drinking. So I carried a lot of shame from that young age. And even in the little town that I grew up in, you know, people started talking negative about me, calling me names and I didn't have a good self-esteem, but I just pressed forward. And in high school, was in a relationship with a guy that was my age. And, you know, we struggled. But once I got out, I was a hairdresser. I was in community college. I was trying to figure out life. And when I met this boyfriend who would become my trafficker, this guy, I met him in a nightclub. And all he did was pay attention to me and buy me a drink for like seven bucks. And I was impressed. So besides the vulnerability of you know, experiencing sexual violence. I think I didn't have a lot of self-esteem or confidence and he just built me up and he loved on me and brought me out and shopping and spent money and attention on me. And that filled that void inside. And that's the whole part of the grooming process. I felt like someone cared about me and loved me. And so then by the time he started trying to talk me into going to a massage parlor and, you know, having sex with strangers for money, I wasn't thrilled with the idea but I was already loving and trusting him and he was promising me that it was gonna be awesome and we'd have all this stuff and a business and a family. So I thought, okay, I'll try. You know, it wasn't like he, um, you know, handcuffed me and <laughs> beat me and kidnapped me and brought me somewhere. No, it was a slow process of manipulation. And to make people understand that process, I tell them it's almost like coming out of a cult, you know, once you exit, because you, your brain, your mind really needs to be deprogrammed because you're so confused. And for me, being in that lifestyle with him for five years, I was really messed up. You know, it's more the mental and emotional bondage that I was in further than anything. I felt shame right away the first time I exchanged myself with a stranger that could have been my grandfather. It was horrible. It was, it was just so disgusting. But I was also really excited because I made a lot of money very quickly. And you try to block out the disgustingness of it and focus on, oh, look how much money I'm making. So it's just this back and forth thing. And once um, I started telling my trafficker or my boyfriend, you know, still a very confusing line. It's a very thin line. Telling him that I didn't want to do it anymore, that's when he started using violence as a way to control me and keep me under his control. And he would, you know, either hit me with his fists or objects or sit me down for hours on end and just berate me and manipulate and belittle me and oh my gosh I can't even explain to you the mental torment you would put me through and um, beat me in front of his mother once and in front of the other women that he would bring in so it's just really frightening when someone starts putting their hands on you you know everything's changed you're like okay it's definitely not going to be that easy to leave and that's what it was and the fear of him going to kill me or my family because he told me he would and he had a gun so I believed him just made it really hard to leave and I don't know if I mentioned this like quote in the book but one of my things that I always say to help people understand what sex trafficking is like I say it's like domestic violence but on steroids everyone's educated and is aware of what domestic violence is which is fantastic and it took about 40 50 years for us to get to that place today 
So I believe that's where we are with the sex trafficking or the anti-trafficking movement, where in maybe 10, 15 years from now, we'll all be educated and know. So we won't be having to do so much awareness, but it just takes a lot of people to speak up and to share and to talk about it and educate to get to that place. So that's exactly what it's like, domestic violence, but on steroids. And the steroids part is because of the shame. There's an immense amount of shame that comes from being prostituted. Absolutely. Your writing really reflected that. Hmm. Let's pause for a minute and hear one of Jasmine's journal entries describing that violence. It's from October 10, 2000. Jasmine calls her trafficker B. Sunday was an all-day argument because B was just in a bad mood. I said something. Whatever, and we fought because I walked out of his house because I just couldn't take it anymore. The aggravation, his voice, getting heated. So he pulled me up the stairs. I screamed for his mom and brother to come out in the hallway to make him stop. But when I grabbed onto his mother's leg for help, she shook me off. These older entries are paired with more recent reflections, like this one from March 4th, 2014. I wasn't handcuffed to a radiator like some people might imagine. Rather, I was mentally and emotionally held captive. I was living under severe oppression, and my emotions were either all over the place or shut off. Thoughts of suicide and homicide were common. Self-medicating was bound to happen. I love how you have a journal entry and then your modern-day take, looking back on it and seeing like, oh, this is what I was going through. Okay, this was me trying to rationalize what was going on, or this was me crying out for help, you know, and like tracking that, you know. And you're right, there is a lot of mental clouding that goes on when you're in a domestic violence situation and then put on top of that being trafficked and and not being able to keep any of the money that you were making. And you write about that also, how he would keep all the money. And so then it kind of put you in this situation where you didn't have many options. Mm-hmm. You feel like you can't tell anybody again because of the shame, the fear, and then the confusion. You feel like sometimes you really like this lifestyle because again, I'm in my early twenties and I'm driving a Mercedes Benz. I live in a big house. I have cars, jewelry, fancy stuff. And you try to focus on that. And it's a false sense of security. It's a false sense of power. And there are really high, high moments, you know, Yes, I was not keeping all of that money that I was making, but it was still running through my hands, you know, and the commercial sex trade for the women that are the prostitutes, when you're dealing with sex buyers, you feel like you have the power because he's paying you the money. And it's all this this lie and this fallacy and this facade, you know, because we become other people and we become whoever the sex buyer wants us to be for that hour or half an hour. So you're also trying to escape that way. You know, I can't tell you how many people I really was, you know, I had stories for all these sex buyers. Um, I was a, a college girl. I went to Northeastern University in Boston and maybe to another sex bar. I went to Boston College. I mean, I had all these stories. Of course, I wasn't going to tell them the truth. Oh, yeah, I, I have a pimp and my life is absolutely horrible, you know, because then he wouldn't pay me. That's not part of the story. That's not part of the facade. So, yeah, it really is so confusing and such a false sense of power and control and because you're being so beat on the other side by your pimp mentally, physically, emotionally, you feel powerful when you take money from another human. They're paying you for what you have. I just can't explain it fully, but so yeah, unhealthy. Right. There were a lot of the perks of the lifestyle and you would were living together. 
I think on and off, right? Yeah, I mean, we lived together in a single family house and there was other women that he would, you know, bring in that would live with us for a short time. None of them stayed as long as I did, except for this other woman that he had from the beginning when I met him, who I think more or less sold drugs for him or with him. And I always had an issue with her because she never like prostituted like I had to, but she never lived with us. I would try to escape many times from him and I'd always go back home to my parents' house. So I would stay maybe a month or two, maybe a week, maybe an hour. I don't know, but it, it never worked out until finally at the end when I left. After five years in the sex trade, Jasmine finally got out. Luckily, her family lived close and the door was always open, as long as she lived according to the rules of the house. But the struggle was not over. Jasmine turned to drugs to cope with the trauma of being trafficked and the shame of being sexually assaulted when she was barely a teenager. After a long battle with drug addiction that included lots of time in and out of rehab, Jasmine finally stopped using drugs in 2007. And so now, you know, as a woman in my 30s, I tell young girls that I meet, like, don't date the drug dealer. (laughs) It's not a cool thing. Because with that life comes a lot of chaos and violence and can lead to other things, obviously. For me, it led to him becoming my trafficker. And he wasn't pimping slash trafficking girls at that time. He was just selling the drugs. But he was being taught the rules of the game, as they call it, by other traffickers. So he was stepping into that life. And unfortunately for me, I became the first one. Did your trafficker ever get arrested? Nope, not once. And you write that trafficking is happening all around us if we know where to look. How do we spot it? What are the clues? Well, what's most common is when you have a girl... I know this happens to boys, too, and I don't want to say that it doesn't, but my experience is female, obviously, because that's what I am. But it does happen to males as well, so just to say that. But mostly, it's going to be either a girl who's, you know, the average age into the commercial sex trade is between 12 and 14, so she can be young. When you first enter into the commercial sex trade and you're coming from a broken home or a place of trouble or trauma or you're running away or you're involved in the child welfare system, I mean, those are all high-risk reasons of how you get in. Either a drug problem, young girls that are not necessarily with older guys, sometimes they're, you know, in their teens as well. They're not always an older gentleman, but that does happen. Tattoos with crowns or dollar signs, barcodes, branding. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Is there a common thread in those symbols or do people know what those mean in that world? Yeah. Like for me, I had his name and it said, you know, his first lady. That's right there, a dead giveaway. Or the money sign or, you know, can you think of it now? Like how that would correlate, like the crown. Definitely. The barcodes, yeah. The branding, okay. Yes. Different cell phones, you know, different stories that just don't match. Disappearing for days on end or coming back. Different phone numbers all the time. You know, obviously bruising is a sure sign. But again, you have to really pay attention because it looks like domestic violence as well. Young girls or even women that have a lot of money all of a sudden, or maybe not have the money, but have a lot of fancy things when they didn't have that before. And these are all definite clues that something's not right. Yep. Or how about um, the apartments where, you know, only men are going in, you know, all throughout the day randomly or the businesses where no women are coming out of. You know, a lot of times in my area, you know, they'll front as massage places or reflexology, foot reflexology, but ultimately it's a brothel and they front as these massage parlors and they're only open till like 10 or nine o'clock at night, but the shades are always drawn. 
and again, you'll never see like women going in or women coming out. It's all men. So to pay attention to that, you can always call the National Human Trafficking Hotline number and put an anonymous tip in. And the more tips they get about one location, then they'll alert the local authorities and hopefully they'll do a surveillance and then a bust. And that phone number for the National Human Trafficking Hotline is 1-888-373-7888. Getting back to your journals, it is amazing that you held on to them also during such a emotionally draining and turbulent time. Was it cathartic to write the book then and incorporate these writings from your past? It was and it wasn't. <laughs> Does cathartic mean like painful too? Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. Actually, it probably should. Like excavating the pain, yes. and like re reliving it. Yeah, right. Like reading young Jasmine, you're like, oh, I love this Jasmine. You know, I think about that when I read my own journals. I'm like, ah, oh, Jenna, what were you thinking? <laughs> I know. You know? <laughs> so it was pain, probably very painful. It was. I had moments where I had to stop writing. And at this point, when I was writing it, I my youngest at the time was in preschool. So I finally had, you know, two days a week of time to myself. And that's when I started to do this process. And I would go to Starbucks or wherever and open up the journal and my computer and I'd start blogging because that's where it started on the blog. I'd have to get up and I'd have to leave or cry or call somebody. I, you know, definitely wouldn't recommend anyone to do that unless they had a good support system. And I did. I had a counselor and good friends that knew I was going through this process. But for me, the desire came from wanting to understand more about what I had been through and wanting to write a book, but not writing the book of just my story because I felt like I don't know. That's kind of not really what I want. I want something more impactful. I, you know, had this thought, like, go back into those journals. Why did you save them all? You know, and I did. And I, I give a lot of credit to my parents who always lived in the same location. Again, I know many young girls who get into the, the sex trade. And one of the reasons why is because they don't have stable parents, you know, and people there. But for me, luckily, my parents just always lived in the same house. And that's where I got to keep all my stuff. And every time I wanted to come back, you know, as long as I was doing the right thing, the door was always open. So I had all those notebooks there and just started going page by page. And I could not believe like, oh, my gosh, because of the trauma and everything I had been through. I don't remember all the details, but going through that reminded me. And some of those pages were like too vivid and too real. And I was right back into those that spot. I, I, you know, I don't remember writing it, but I remember what I was writing about for sure. And we're so glad you did write the book, The Diary of Jasmine Grace, Trafficked, Recovered, Redeemed. It's self-published, but you can buy it on Amazon. Jasmine also runs a nonprofit to help other women in the Boston area find ways out of trafficking and addiction. Find out more at jasminegrace.org. Full disclosure, I was one of those small children who liked to cut her own hair with art scissors, gave myself bangs once, shaved an eyebrow. But honestly, it's a good thing I didn't become a hairdresser. I was pretty bad with scissors. And that was just one of the many questionable decisions I made back in the day. But come on, we all have a lot of those not-so-smart moments. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com survivor to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds quality candidates for you. It scans thousands of resumes and identifies the people with top-notch experience, education, and skills and actively invites them to apply for your job. And you'll get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. So do the smart thing and try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive address, ZipRecruiter.com survivor. 
That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Survivor. Third time's a charm. ZipRecruiter.com slash Survivor. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, have you heard what other listeners have to say about the Wondery app? I think the Wondery app is really organized in a very natural way, sorts my options out so that I can really like zero in on that type of podcast I'm looking for. It's given me some good ideas for what's up next. So once I'm done and through all the seasons of Even the Rich, I plan on starting Guru. Don't just take our word for it. Try the Wondery app for free and join Wondery Plus for more. Wondery. Feel the story. Jasmine does call trafficking domestic violence on steroids, and that was definitely her experience. And I think the experience of a lot of people in the position that she was in, you're so controlled from every single angle of your life. Yeah, I mean, it definitely made me think about how this is like an incredibly abusive relationship and how that relationship was exploited, right? When people think, oh, why did she stay? And it's sort of like... People don't realize how that connection is exploited and like intentionally created to try and make people do things they don't want to do. And I think that's really the core of it, right? That like people are being coerced into doing things they don't want to do. And, you know, a lot of people talk about sex trafficking. And I think it's worth noting that like it's different from like sex work and like consensual sex work. Jasmine's story was so harrowing and it shows that difference where like if you're not choosing this right like we need to be not blaming them and we need to support them to like make them able to get out and and I think about how stigma against all types of sex work actually hurts trafficking victims like Jasmine right because there's this stigma and and, and you're afraid to speak out and and I'm sure I've read many accounts of pimps who use that fact right to keep them quiet and to abuse them further it's just heartbreaking to read and like reading it from a journal I think we're just so lucky to be able to hear her account not just from her position now but just when she was in the moment feeling those raw feelings, because I, I I feel them when I read them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in that relationship, you know, you are always looking for the silver lining of stuff. You know, it's like, okay, well, this is bad, but it's going to be okay because I'm going to keep going. And she's an amazing self-motivator. You know, I think she has so much personal will, you know, not only to kind of see it while you're in it, because that's so hard. And that's why domestic abuse is so prevalent, because... It's a very confusing relationship, and it's, yeah, based on, like, control and manipulation. And then to throw in being forced to sell your body for money that you don't even get to keep. Um, not like that would change it if you got to keep all the money, but you never know. But you know? it's but part it's of the part abuse, of, right? Because yeah, like, it's yeah. like, you're just this thing I'm using for my own gains. You know, like, that that would emotionally mess me up, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and about spotting it around that there's human trafficking around us and we don't even know. And I think also, you know, there's a lot of talk about sex trafficking, all those things. And, you know, part of it, I think, is like we should also just train people on how to identify abusive relationships. You know, I think a lot of times when people are out in public, you might see an argument between, oh, my God, I actually this happened to me once. So this is a fun story. This guy I dated um, after I was kicked out of Tufts. So I was already in a very emotional state and I was dating another person who was a former student there, but they actually graduated. 
And we had this big blow up like outside near Madison Square Garden. So he did this huge blow up and then everyone like literally just turned and watched and he started like yelling. He's like, I'm tired of you abusing me. And he was the one who was just arrested for domestic violence. And no one came up to me be like, are you okay? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing to try and help other people? You know, if you see someone being dragged up by their hair off a flight of stairs, what are you doing? Yeah, that actually happened to me a week after I got out of my first marriage. So I was also super raw. And I was in Santa Monica and I saw this couple and the guy was screaming at the girl just on the sidewalk a summer day. And... I just marched over to him because I was like, oh, hell no. And he was just berating her on the sidewalk. And I was like, oh, if it's this bad on the sidewalk, it's got to be even worse when they're alone. And so I walked up to him and I got in his face and I was like, I know who you are. And I I just started yelling at him. And I was like, you're out of your mind. I turned to the girl and he he shut up right away because he was like, why is this short person yelling at me and I turned to his girlfriend and I was like do you want to come with me I was like I I just left a fucker like this like do you want to come to my house I live over there you know you're welcome Mm -hmm. to and she gave me this look that I can only describe as oh my god someone finally knows my secret I, I don't know what happened I don't know they ended up walking away together but I was like I hope that she knows that it's wrong because I told her I was yeah. like, you need to leave him. He's a douche. I think he called him a douchebag to his face. <laughs> but he was afraid of me, I think, because mm-hmm. I called it out. And you're right. Sometimes that's all it takes is someone calling it out. I mean, like, this is wrong. Yeah. And also thinking, I like when you said, like, I know who you are. Because I also wonder if he thought if you did, right? Because they don't like behaving that way in front of people who might know them, right? And might, like, disrupt the whatever facade he probably has, you know? So I, I love that. Calling it out yeah. in, real, in real time. Calling it out calling it out in real time. OMG. On blast. (laughs) Yes. Let's change it up a bit and hear our next story in today's episode. Alicia Molina first got addicted to drugs and alcohol when she was just 13 years old. My drunk bone, Alicia says, is connected to my drug bone. I really didn't know that I had this disease until it became very evident later on in my adult life when I had more responsibilities, incapable of doing life without having some vice, whether it be alcohol, drugs, men, behaviors. I was basically an addict. And you, I guess, started uh, using drugs and alcohol when you were 13. And your experience with your own addiction, was it a slow start? Was it fast? Or like, how do you find yourself as a teenager using? Well, as a teenager, I wanted to check out I didn't like, you know, my home life was dysfunctional. Um, My father was very abusive. Um, We have a really good relationship now, but I think at the time he just didn't know what to do with a teenage daughter. Um, He was uh, very heavy with his hand and um, I was afraid of him. And so I sought friendships that were going to give me a good time. And my friends like to smoke pot. They like to drink vodka. And that was awesome for me because I didn't like to feel. And then when I got older, you know, the vodka and the pot turned into um, experimental drugs like ecstasy and 
you know, acid and shrooms. And we just experimented like every weekend with a new drug until we started having like parties surrounding like our drug of choice that weekend, whether it be Coke or mushrooms or whatever. And then it wasn't until I was 23 when I couldn't get any Coke (laughs) that I was introduced to meth as a substitute. And that just took me. It took me and it didn't let me go. When I had my first born, when I was 23 years old, I was heavily addicted to crystal meth. My crystal meth abuse was a daily activity. It was a number one priority and it consumed me. And I thought that, well, if I had a child, I would have to stop using. Like there's no other way. You can't carry a baby and smoke meth. I mean, that's just unheard of. Nobody does that. But unfortunately, my disease was so cunning, baffling, and powerful that I did use during my pregnancy. I did use when my son was born. And when my son was born, I raised him by the baby monitor. When I would put him down to go to sleep, I would go to the garage and I would use, and I would have the baby monitor on so that anytime he woke up, I would tend to his needs. But there was no bonding. There was no real connection I was absolutely unexistent to his needs as an emotional mother because I was consumed by this drug. And thank God DCFS intervened. And at the time, I thought it was a nightmare come true. But what it was was a blessing in disguise because he was raised by two individuals that were his grandparents who became his parents. And I couldn't have asked for better parents for him. DCSF is the L.A. County Department of Children and Family Services. When she was 26, Alicia had her second child, another son. And at that time, I was able to put down the drinks and the drugs because I was married. And I really had a a traumatized experience by losing my firstborn to this disease that I thought, darn it, I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to be a good wife. I'm going to be a good worker among workers. I'm going to have this child right. And I did a really good job. I was a good wife. I was a good worker. I was, I was sober and I was willing and ready to take on whatever it took to be a sober mom. Unfortunately, my marriage collapsed due to um, my spouse being uh, unfaithful. And one more time, I felt like a failure. I couldn't keep the marriage going. I started using again. And my disease was so progressive that within the next year, one more time, DCFS was involved. I failed to test clean and sober on a drug test. When he was detained, he was only three years old. He wasn't even old enough to talk yet. And when I got that phone call that my son had been detained from my care and put in the hands of his father, I physically and emotionally collapsed. I was behind the wheel of my car when I got the phone call and I I was on the freeway and my car almost went into the sidewall and I I could have killed myself. So I decided to exit the freeway was where I had a panic attack for two and a half hours. I felt like I was going to die because I couldn't breathe and I was panting. I finally, you know, was able to gather myself together to drive home. But when I walked into the door and noticed that I was all alone, the silence was so loud that my next train of thought was, how can I die? How can I find enough, you know, 
cord to hang myself with. Instead of calling, you know, my mom or my dad or someone who loved me and cared about me, I called my drug dealer, I called my low bottom friends, and I decided to numb out by using more drugs. I wish I can say that I was able to hit a bottom quickly, but it didn't work out that way. I was on monitored visits from that moment on, and every time I would visit my son, I had to be in, I had to be high enough to show up. Otherwise, it was too hard for me to show up. And when I did show up, my son was crying the whole time. He didn't understand why I had to leave him. He couldn't verbally tell me how much he missed me, but I could tell that he would latch onto me and hold onto me and, and wouldn't let me go. And then when I had to say goodbye, it was like, it was torture. I decided at that point I wasn't going to be able to visit him anymore. It would be best if he didn't see me. And I continued to use and I continued to drink and drug and I lost my jobs, I lost relationships, I lost my place to live. And I I lost everything. At the end of my rope, I didn't have a phone. I didn't. I was living out of uh, trash bags. I was um, ping-ponging through life is how I would describe it. Using this guy and that guy, staying in this hotel and that hotel. If I was lucky, I got to ride on someone's couch. Sometimes I ended up in a casino lobby for two and a half weeks wearing the same clothes, wishing someone would take pity on me. And on February 11, 2013, I hitchhiked my way from the Pachanga. The Pachanga is a casino in Temecula, California. And I ended up in Manhattan Beach at another friend's house. And I said, look, I need a place to stay. Just let me sleep this one off. I promise I'll get out of your hair when you get home from work. He's like, yeah, you can stay here, but my girlfriend's here. And when she wakes up, she's going to be pissed. I go, I'll explain it all to her that I, that I won't get in her way. I'll be gone by the time you get home. Well, that girl ended up being someone who was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I told her a little bit about my struggles and how I couldn't stay stopped. And she said, if you wanted to stop, you could stop. And she told me a little bit of how, if I really wanted to, what I had to do to get there. And something clicked. I call it a moment of clarity. That friend of mine got home. I said, you know what, can I borrow your phone real quick? And instead of calling my drug dealer again, like I always did, I called my grandma Connie and I had a divine intervention. Something told me you're done. When I felt it, I was like, you're right, I'm done. I'm going to call grandma Connie and I'm going to tell her I'm coming home. And that's what I did. I called grandma Connie. I said, grandma Connie, I'm coming home and I'm not coming to visit. I'm coming to stay. I need a change of life, a change of atmosphere. I need, I need a new beginning. She said, oh, mija, I've been praying for you. You come over. I'll be right here waiting. How long is it going to take? And grandma, I don't know. I got to get the money for the gas to get the guy to get the ride. Da, da, da. And uh, two and a half hours later, I went from Manhattan Beach to Torrance Boulevard, where I kicked drugs and alcohol. I was in a nine day, what I call psychosis. I literally was paranoid because the people that I used to hang out with were people that were criminals and I was an active criminal with them. And I thought for sure the police were after me. This was all in my head. I used to sleep with a knife by my side. I would check the fireplace. I thought, you know, for sure they were after me. And it was all just psychosis. I was, <laughs> I was deep in it. What I did to stay sober because I could do one day. One day is easy. I just sleep through it. I could maybe do two days because the second day I'm just eating all day and sleeping again. But the third day is when the cravings start to kick in. So by the fourth day, it was like, what do I do with my time? Well, I remembered Alcoholics Anonymous and there was an AA meeting and I went to 
an AA meeting in the morning and then I stayed for the afternoon and then I would go back home, I would eat some food and then I would go back again at night and I literally stayed in AA like all day. My dad said, you know, honey, we really want to help you, but you've done this thing before where you said you're going to get sober and then you'd fall off and you get, you know, you get loaded again. What is this going to be different this time? And I said, daddy, I don't know what to tell you other than when you're done, you're done. And he believed me. And he, from that moment on, really trusted me. And to earn my father's trust was a big deal. Because I had burned my bridges. I had betrayed the trust of the family. I mean, I can't tell you how many times they've been exposed to my behavior and been in danger due to my behavior because the people I ran with, people are going to rob you, maybe hurt you. He believed me. And since I've been sober, my dad and my mom have been giving me celebration cakes every year for my sobriety. And since I've been sober, I've been able to have a relationship with that son that I couldn't be a mom for. And since I've been sober, I've had joint legal, joint physical custody of my son where we built a bond and a relationship. And mind you, the first three years in my sobriety, he didn't call me mom. He wasn't ready. And it takes time. But what I do today is unrecognizable to what I used to do in my disease. And I'm just so grateful that I was able to die, to be reborn, and to do this thing again. You know, just yesterday I was uh, walking my dog and I saw this gentleman and he had a big abscess on his leg and he had a backpack on one arm and another bag on another arm and I know he just shot up. And he was walking with this funny limp, and it was probably because he was in a lot of pain. And then one minute, just one minute later, I saw another gentleman come around the corner, and he's wearing those ankle, that ankle bracelet that you wear when you're on house arrest. And just a couple hours later, I go to the CVS, and there's a lady with a bottle of wine, and she recognized me from the meeting. But she can't stop drinking. The disease is everywhere. I see it every day. I work with these individuals that are trying to stay stopped and I'm showing them how. But I can't give this thing to anybody. All I can do is share my experience and hope that something grows. And um, I continuously try to be awakened by experience and I continually, you know, work on my spirituality by having this stronger connection to my higher power because. <laughs> Left to my own devices, my disease is on. It is kicking and it is strong. And so I never underestimate that power and the nature of my disease because it is still alive and well. When I see someone have a cocktail and they have those olives in their martinis, oh man, I want to get, I'm thirsty. I want to get that <laughs> olive. I want to drink that martini. I want to taste the salt on that margarita, but I know where it takes me. And you're working now as a substance abuse counselor in Redondo Beach, California. That's right, at Clear Recovery Center. We're an IOP and we do dual diagnosis for people with mental health and substance abuse. That's the Clear Recovery Center in Redondo Beach. The center's website is clearrecoverycenter.com. IOP stands for Intensive Outpatient Program. And we also have a teen track. So we are available to all the community that, you know, may be struggling with these same issues. And there is hope out there. Absolutely. And you have your son back. Yes, I have yes. my son back. And that that was my dream come true. To be a sober mom, like, I, it was unheard of. I didn't even, it, it didn't even fathom that it could be real in my lifetime. I had made a decision a long time ago. I was going to die by the disease. I was always going to be sick. At one point in my life, there was no hope. And now here I am, like, doing all of these things that 
I've always wanted to do as a mom. And it's uncomparable from, like I said, where I've been. So I'm so grateful. It's really powerful stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's just incredible to hear how you've come so far. And I I really appreciate you being so transparent and open with us and being willing to share the gory details. I would just want to thank you once again, because my story, if it could help somebody else rewrite their story, then I've done a good thing. Silvio Berlusconi was a real estate mogul turned billionaire playboy with a scandal-ridden track record a mile long. Everyone just assumed that when he decided to run for office, that it was a stunt. No one ever thought he could actually win. But Berlusconi's wealth, charisma, and control over the media made him one of the most influential men in the world, until three women and two words brought him down. Bunga, bunga. I'm Whitney Cummings, and my new eight-part miniseries, Boonga Boonga, is available on September 8th on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen right now ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Wow, living in a casino lobby for two weeks. Bananas. The things she's seen. Yeah. I mean, it just shows how sometimes we even just further isolate people who need help, right? And they're stuck somewhere. So I love that she was able to detox on someone's couch, right? Like, and, and, and community is what saved her. Because I, I noticed, right, like she got increasingly isolated and things got worse. And then when she started connecting again with people who love and care for her and are good for her, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's when things started going uphill. So thinking about like community, mm-hmm. connection, we're human beings. So yeah, and AA and how mm-hmm. the guy's girlfriend was not mad. She was actually had <laughs> the saving information that she needed to hear, you know, and she yeah. ended up there on purpose. And yeah, she started drinking and using drugs so young. You know, I think that is such an epidemic here in a lot of places where young kids, you know, early teens are abusing substances that are really, really hard to kick, you know. And when you're just in those developmental stages of your body, you be, you do become addicted because you're still growing. Yeah, it's hard because I think part of it is like, right, a lot of people experiment. And then there's also this aspect where I think, you know, teenagers or young people very often, just if your life is normal, quote unquote, or like nothing, you know, this is like average stuff. Even if you have like the foundation and security, you still have all these emotions. And if we're teaching people not to manage their emotions, right? So then when you first experience it as a teenager, like, oh my gosh, I don't feel, right? And because especially if we're telling people that emotions are bad, like how are we setting people up? in certain ways. I always feel like I'm trying to make it about like the community, but I, I do think like it starts early. Like, like why are people self-medicating so early? What's going on in their lives? How can we prevent that? Like, what if we get the 11-year-old, the 12-year-old and being like, actually, it's okay for you to feel sad. Actually, you know, your mom is kind of mean. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And like, yeah, what is that knee-jerk reaction to numb out? Yeah, and addressing that instead, like making it safe to feel feelings, making it yeah okay to just be a person and, you know, be sad and have a bad day and get through it. And I've started trying to check myself more, too, because 
you know, there's champagne days where you're like, oh, I just had a great meeting or like, oh, this script I wrote sold. And I'm like popping champagne. And then some other days I'm like, I'm exhausted. And if I want a glass of wine, I've started asking myself like, okay, is this celebration or are you just tired or what are you doing? Like, and also why are you connecting alcohol with celebration, which I think is so common. I do it a hundred percent. I have many bottles of champagne in my fridge because anytime I get good news, I'll just like pop one. It's weird. I love that. Yeah. That's yeah. not weird. That's actually kind of cute. I'm like, yeah. why didn't I ever think about yeah. that when I really loved champagne? Totally. <laughs> I know it's so much harder to drink, but I'll put a little label on it, you know, with whatever project. And then the minute it goes, I'll just be like, yeah, just as a little way of acknowledging the I little victories. love yeah. that. Actually, you label you my it fridge. for each pro- yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm stealing ideas and yeah. taking notes. Get, like, little labels and be like, this thing. But there's a balance. But, yeah, exactly. Where instead of, you know, that temptation then to, or after a bad breakup, it's like, oh, I don't want to feel this pain. Okay, let me just, you know, drink all the Chardonnay. And the thing about stigma, right? No one talks about it. So if a youth is at risk or anyone of any age, right, but if we're still telling it's something to be ashamed about then they're not going to come forward. So I think a part of it is also like these sort of things start before even, you know, the person might be dealing with it, right? Because it's about expressing yourself as someone who won't judge and who's open and like realizing like, yo, I'm going to support you because like we all have shit in our lives, right? Like it just comes in different packages and I'm not going to judge you because your package looks different than mine. (laughs) I didn't realize I was walking into that. But (laughs) it was too late. (laughs) And I was just thinking, too, about in, you know, child development, there's all those posters that show just specific emotions. It's like happy looks like this, sad looks like this. And maybe there's something messed up with that, Hmm. that we're taught from such an early age that like, oh, anger means you have a red face and this. It's like, no, sometimes anger can just be like, you shut down. Yeah. You know, or maybe that's it, that we think that there's only a limited amount of emotions and that there's only certain ways to express them. And if you feel something that's not on the chart, it's wrong or that you're weird. Yeah, that's so true. Because I'm actually thinking about like cultural competency, right? Because I I think about growing up as, you know, a child of immigrants and like just seeing how so many things were presented to me as the norm growing up. You know, this is how you're supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to act. And like, I felt like a weirdo. Then you read research later, like, oh, no, actually, it's, like, it's just because different cultures. And we've only been representing a small sliver of our society, right? And not even, like, all Americans or all white people would experience it in the same way anyway, right? Why are we keeping it so narrow? Yeah. And that's it for the show. Thanks to Jasmine Grace Marino and Alicia Molina for sharing such powerful stories with us. If you know someone who you think may be a victim of human trafficking, you can call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 and leave an anonymous tip. And we just want to say that even if the tip is anonymous, make sure you do it only if you really mean it. The U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE as they're better known, they're not to be messed with and... It's a really serious process, I think, if we're going to trigger that. So keep that in mind and make sure that you're not taking the hotline lightly. If you're hearing this on a smartphone, scroll down or tap on the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors like ZipRecruiter. To get started for free, visit ZipRecruiter.com survivor. If you like what we're doing, we would love it if you could leave us a five-star rating and a review. We've been telling you a little bit about us during the show, and now Wagatwa and I would love to know a little more about you. You can take a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
That's wondery.com slash survey. iSurvivor is hosted by me, Wagatwe Wanjuki, and Jenna Brister. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. iSurvivor is produced by Leah Sutherland. The executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive producers, Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of Wondery's show, American Scandal. We bring to life some of the biggest controversies in U.S. history, presidential lies, environmental disasters, corporate fraud. In our new series, we look at a monopoly that defined modern America. John D. Rockefeller was a titan of oil. He built an empire with bribes, ruthless acquisitions, and even espionage. Yet he wasn't invincible. Rockefeller would face off against a woman named Ida Tarbell, who fought to expose Rockefeller through the power of journalism. Find out how. Subscribe to American Scandal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free in the Wondery app.